of two locations. We will think of either the cross or we'll think about the tomb. And we're going to cover both of those today, but what we're actually going to do is we're going to sort of travel our way to the path of the resurrection. We're going to walk with Christ. We're going to go from the Garden of Gethsemane to the palace of the high priest of Caiaphas. Then we're going to go to the Roman judgment hall, then to the scourging on the way to the cross on Golgotha's hill, and then we're going to go to the grave. And today's message is called Unlikely Symbols of Hope. Unlikely Symbols of Hope. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for today. Thank you for the gift, God, of this time. And thank you, Lord, for each one that is here. God, we praise you for our visitors. Lord, we praise you for returning visitors. We praise you and thank you, Lord, for our members that are here. Lord, I pray that you'd speak to all of our hearts. Lord, that we would not have a, a judging heart, but Lord, that we would just have a willing heart just to hear the truth as it is preached. And God, you know my heart. Uh, my desire, Father, is not to be heard today. I do not want to be important. I don't want to be remembered. If there was any way I could preach this message and just vanish, God, that would be amazing. Uh, Lord, if, uh, if they remember you today and they forget me, God, I've done my job. So I pray that you help remove the human element, my stumbling tongue. pray that you get me out of the way, uh, that the truth might be spoken. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. All right. So as we're going to literally follow uh, the final hours of the Lord, we're going to be in about the last 18 hours of his life. And as we're doing that, the first place we're going to start off is the Garden of Gethsemane. The Garden of Gethsemane. What we'll find here is the fact that this is a place where Jesus is going to pray and talk to God. But on the way there, he's going to be talking to the disciples. He's kind of communicating to them and kind of prepping them for what's to come. And he says this in John 16, verses 32 through 33. He says, Behold, the hour cometh, yea, is now come, that ye shall be scattered, every man to his own, and ye shall leave me alone. And yet I am not alone, because the Father is with me. Verse 33 says, These things have I spoken unto you, that in me... You might find, you might have peace. In the world ye shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. You. you know what he's saying? If we were to transfer, translate into our modern vernacular, I might, you might say something like this. Boys, what's getting ready to happen is going to rock your world. You're going to be shaken to your core. But what I need you to know is that, guess what? Don't lose hope. God has a plan through this. And then what happens is Jesus is going to separate himself away from the disciples. When they even arrive in the garden, he's going to step away and commune and talk to God. We see in Matthew 26, verses 36 through 37. It says, Then cometh Jesus with them unto a place called Gethsemane, and saith unto the disciples, Sit ye here while I go and pray, go and pray yonder. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee and began to be sorrowful and very heavy. So keep in mind, why is he heavy? Jesus knows exactly the level of suffering that he is about to endure. And can I tell you that knowing what's coming is worse than not knowing? Right. I'm going to give you a little story. It's a little bit gross, but I'm going to share it with you anyway. When I was about 19 years old, I was driving a car, fell asleep, ran off the road, and ran into a ditch. Horrific, destructive accident. My head was slammed against the front of the car, and I, my nose was so smashed that it was in my eye when I got out of the car. So I had to have reconstructive surgery on my nose. If you ever wonder what's wrong with my face... Now you know. Um, but when they, when they reconstruct your nose, they do what they do. It's called packing. They take about a, about a foot of cotton, and they pack it up inside of your nostrils so that when it heals, it doesn't collapse, right? So all my face in here was all broken. So when they do that, they leave it in there for about three or four weeks. And you know your body has a tendency to grow to things, right? So there's little bone fragments and all this little stuff up inside there. And I'm like going, man, I can't wait to breathe again. This is going to be awesome. I can't wait to go to the doctor and I can't wait to breathe again because you're all packed up, you know. And I went to the doctor with all this expectation. And they do it one at a time. So they sit down. They go, okay, we're going to undo this tape. They take tape off and they start to pull. 
And I am telling you, I have never in my life imagined what pain could feel like up inside of your head where it's pulling out all these little pieces and chunks and stuff like that have grown to it. And man, I'm talking about screaming, tears just pouring down my face. I'm like, ah! They get it done and he pulls the last one. He's like, whoo, yes. Now he's like, second side. Ugh. Can I tell you, before he got started, I wasn't so worried about it. But knowing what was coming made it a million times worse. And the Lord knows exactly what is coming on every single level. Suffering physically, emotionally, and spiritually. Because recognize the one who has never known sin, who's never known shame, who's never known godly sorrow, is preparing to become sin for us. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians 5.20, when it says, For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. The Bible says, made him to be sin for us. Why did God do this? Driven by love and knowing what awaits, Jesus prays to the Father in John 17. This is in the garden. He says this in 17 verses 1 through 4. These words spake Jesus and lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify thy Son, that thy Son also may glorify thee. Remember that Jesus is our ultimate example. He is the picture of what a Christian should be. We are to be Christ-like. That means we're supposed to act, sound, and look like Him. Romans 8.29 tells us this, and the fact that it says this, For whom He did foreknow, He also did predestinate. You're going to hear people, and you're going to go to churches, and if you're in the wrong church, you're going to hear them talk about what predestination is. They're going to tell you that that means God predetermined that you would be saved. But the next part of this verse kind of blows that out of the water, because it says, And He did predestinate to be conformed to the image of His Son. What that means is, when you get saved, and the Spirit of God moves inside of your heart, it's already predetermined by God that that Spirit is going to shape you into the image of of Christ. That's what it's talking about. That he might be the firstborn among many brethren. The very life that Jesus was brought to life in that tomb. The same life that came through that spirit that brought him to life. He is the firstborn. And when we get saved, guess what? The same power works in us. He's the firstborn of many brethren. Praise God. Amen. Then we see how he is our, our prototype. And recognize, just a quick quick side note, because we're gonna, we have baptisms today. Three men getting baptized today. Praise the Lord. Amen. This is a water baptism. This is a physical baptism. What we're talking about here, that is a spiritual baptism. When you receive Christ, you are baptized into the Spirit of God. You're brought to life. What we're going to do today is we're going to picture the death, burial, and resurrection physically, but that does not save us. We are saved by faith alone. For by grace you are saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. It is not about what we do. It's about our faith in him, he did all the work. That was a side note. It's not in my message, but God said to talk about it, so I did. Anyway, so we understand. Now, if we look at here and we understand that Jesus is our prototype, right? What did Jesus say in that part, in the verse we saw just a moment ago? We talked about what his purpose was in John 17, 1. He said that thy son also may glorify thee, okay? That the son would glorify the father. As we stated time and time again in this church, the reason why we're here is to glorify God, Amen. not to gain glory for ourselves. Right, right. This is an important principle to understand. Listen, if this is like, if, if life was literally uh, what we're living right now, the life that we're choosing to live, if we're a Christian, is the life we're living, is it currently giving glory to God or is it focusing on us? That's a hard question many times and sometimes it varies day to day. But notice what he says next in verse number two. 
He says, As thou hast given him power over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. And this is life eternal. Okay, here we go. That they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. I have glorified thee on the earth. I've done what I've come to do. Listen to this. I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. So he says, I finished the work. This is before. This is the day before his death on the cross. Some people will go, well, he's talking about the cross. How can he be talking about the cross? He says he's finished it here. So what he's actually referencing to, and what he'll do is he'll tell us. In the next 22 verses, he explains what it is that he's done. What was his work? He has established his disciples. So understanding what the work of the Lord actually is, it's not doing good deeds. When I'm in a soup kitchen and I'm handing out food, or I'm building a house, or I'm on the mission field, or I'm drilling a well, I'm not doing the work of the Lord. Now, I'm not telling you we don't do those things. We absolutely do. We want to meet the physical needs of people as they go through struggles. But guess what? If we're to be truly involved in the work of the Lord, which was what God God gave Christ to do, listen, it's about reaching people with the gospel. It's about literally establishing them in their faith and then helping them to then do the same thing for someone else. So when we do something good for somebody, Recognize the fact that it's not about that. It's not, that's not establishing the Christian life. That's not living with God. God didn't live us, leave us here to just work on our fellowship with Him, to work on us. I need to be a better version of me. You ever read those books? Uh, you know, your best life now. Right? You're going to be the best version of you on earth. That is ridiculous. The best version of you will not be here. I can guarantee you that. The best version of you will be when you stand with the Lord because this body of flesh will be, will be gone. But what I can recognize, what is important is the fact that, listen, as we do these things, and as we do, like we're sending a container to Malawi, 40-foot container, it'll be 40,000 pounds of materials that we've given. 2019, we sent 33,000 pounds already. We're going to do it again. We're building homes. We're building, doing all kinds of work. We're doing things in our local area. But listen, if we do that, but we don't have it, it's not gospel-driven, what's the point? What's the point? It's not about touching their physical body. It's about touching their spirit. Because realistically, if I take care of their need here and they die and go to hell, what was the point? I just extended their time on earth. Ultimately, what God wants us to do is let what our kindness does is that becomes a bridge to where we can share with them the truth of who God truly is. Amen. Because I was under the perception growing up, knowing nothing about God, that it was all just about being a good person. That's all I knew because I watched cartoons. Saturday morning cartoons. And when Soul Train came on, it's all over. Right? <laughs> Used to see that train. It was like, shug, shug. I'm like, oh, man, cartoons are done. But guess what? In the cartoons, the bad guys got horns and they went to hell. And the good guys, guess what? They got wings and a harp. And so I'm like, well, it's just about being a good person. And that was one thing that night when someone shared the gospel with me. He said, look, Dave, no matter how hard you try to be good, you'll never be good enough. It's impossible. That's why Christ came to die for them. So in doing so, what we do in living this life and doing the things that we do is, listen, our whole job is to bring sons and daughters to God. And we do that not only through sharing the gospel, not only, but also living it. That our life would speak to those that are looking in. People look at how we deal with tribulation, how we deal with adversity, how we deal with loss. And they see hope in a situation that's to be hopeless. And they go, well, that, I'd like that. What do they have that I, that I don't have? How do they have joy in the midst of such suffering in their life? Because it's a knowledge of something that they don't have, right? To know that God has a purpose and a plan even for the valley that you're in today. Amen. And that one day you'll look back and say, thank God. How many of us can look back in our lives at things we went through that were hard and look back and go, man, I'm glad I went through that because it made me who I am today. 
right? Amen. With a God perspective, you recognize the fact that that's always, always the case. So what we see here is the fact that our job, ultimately, is to bring this lost world out of the darkness and into the light. We're not the light. We point them to the light. So then he closes in prayer. And as he closes in prayer and he finds his disciples sleeping, oh, the, the flesh, right? Judas Iscariot, the betrayer, arrives. Matthew 26, verses 45 through 46. Then cometh he to his disciples and saith unto them, Sleep on now and take your rest. Behold, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. Behold, he is at hand that doth betray me. And we know that Judas is going to betray Jesus with a kiss. What a horrific way to betray somebody in an act that's supposed to be of love, and it's actually of hatred. Matthew 26, verses 48 through 49. Now he that betrayed him gave them a sign, saying, Whomsoever I shall kiss, the same as he, hold him fast. And forthwith he came to Jesus and said, Hail, Master, and kissed him. And in the next moment, the man who had loved Judas, who had cared for Judas, who had lived the very principles and traits of God and displayed them to him, is now being bound as a criminal and be taken to, to stand trial at our second location, which is the palace of the high priest Caiaphas. And it would be here that Jesus would be lied about and railroaded. Absolutely. They would bring in false witnesses. They paid to lie about him. And they would twist the truth in order to forget to fit their agenda. The religious elite of the day had a purpose and a plan to twisting the truth. And can I tell you that the same thing is true today? There is a religious elite in this, in this world. And people believe that they're above the law. They believe they're above other people. The Bible says, judge not lest ye be judged. Guess what? You're all a bunch of knuckleheads. You're all a bunch of sinners. You're all a bunch of screw-ups. God knows that about us. So he sees through all the stuff, the things we build up about ourselves thinking we're important. So understand, don't think I'm not. Look, I should be sitting with y'all. If anybody should be, I should be sitting with y'all. But you know what? I got to do this, so I'm going to do the best I can. But recognize the fact that, listen, what we're doing here is he's saying, listen, these guys are pointing out, they're calling Jesus a liar. And what is a twisting of the truth. And what we find in our culture today is, listen, there are people that are out there teaching and preaching that there is a God that is about loving people. Yes, God is about love. Absolutely. And God accepts everything. He doesn't judge sin anymore. No, this is a God of, a God of love. Amen. He doesn't judge sin. And you know what his focus is? He wants you to be happy. Amen. He wants you to be happy. It's about fulfillment on the earth. Did you not know that's why God came? To give us a way to get all that we ever wanted so that we could finally find satisfaction in this place? That's a lie. It's not. It's a lie. Because understand, what does God do? God talks about the fact that, yes, guess what? He will judge sin, and there's a way. And the fact is, none of us will escape it. But also, His focus is not on happiness. God's focus is on holiness. It's on holiness. The whole concept that we're going to be seeking happiness, that's a human construct. God says holiness. 1 Peter 1, verses 15 and 16. But as he which called you, hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation, because it is written, Be ye holy, for I am holy. And you know what's so amazing about holiness? People go, God, that sounds boring. Oh, I'm sitting on a mountain with a bunch of monks, right? Oh, that's not what this is. Being holy is living a life that seeks God, that pleases God, because guess what? You get us a sense of fulfillment because what we're told is that the world, if we'll get enough stuff, will finally get fulfilled. Man, if I could just get the right car, the right house, the right girl, the right whatever, the right job, the right career, enough likes, enough follows, if I can get that stuff, I'll finally, 
finally be happy. Mm. It's a lie. Because right. when you get one, guess what? You want more else. You want more, and you want more, you want more, you want more, you want more. Right. What happens? You know what? Uh, Andrew Carnegie, who was at the one time was the richest man on the entire planet, and a reporter sat down with him. He said, Mr. Carnegie, how much money is enough? And he smiled, and he said, one more dollar. Never enough. It's never enough. So we'll find, we'll try to find happiness here on this earth. But you know what we're really seeking? Love. Right. We're seeking love. Why do people get into bad relationships? Because guess what they're seeking? Love. Why do women or girls who don't have a father, why do they fall in the arms of a man who mistreats them? Because you know what? They just want someone to love them, just to see them for who they are, to not use them as an object, but to say, you know what? I have value and worth to your life. And understand the fact that God has a purpose for our lives. It's so beautiful. And if we get past this selfish desire to fulfill ourselves and we start to realize that we're here so that God can use us to touch the lives of others, man, suddenly, instead of seeking happiness, you finally, through holiness, start to be truly joyful. And it changes your existence. It is amazing. to go. Let me just tell you, from coming from the world for 34 years of my life to now 20 years of walking with Christ, there is no comparison at all. So, as they work through this, and we think about this kind of pre... And and I have this in my notes. I said, look, you know what? This is archaic kind of thinking. Okay, This is not the preaching of today. You go to most of the churches around here, they're going to be about happiness, fulfillment, all this kind of stuff like that. It's about you, 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 you. It's all about you. The Bible's not about us. This is not a book for us. This is a book about God so that you and I can go to it. And guess what? You find out who He is, not who we are. It's not a self-help book for humanity. It is a way for us to be shaped and molded into the image of Christ. So God... Preach. Calls us to be more. And so as our culture tells us to be less, can I just tell you that, you know what, if this is archaic preaching, then I am going to be a dinosaur to my dying breath. Amen. Because this church, as long as I'm the pastor of this church, we are going to stand on the truth Amen. of the Word of God. Yes. Because it has to be the standard that we live. Because I'm telling you, if you shift from that, you will find yourself rudderless in this life and you will be helpless and hopeless and broken and you'll be lost in the dark. God gave us a compass and said, this is north. Just follow the compass. So the kangaroo court comes to a close in the wee hours of the night and Caiaphas and his religious cronies, what do they do? They find Jesus guilty of heresy and they go, okay, you know, this guy's worthy of death. And just to give you a frame of reference, we all know we've heard about Peter and the denial that takes place. That's taking place right now. While all this stuff's going on over the night, that's where Peter's doing that whole denial. And then we know the cock crows, right? He said he would deny him three times, and then the cock crows. Matthew 27, 1, 2 says, When the morning was come, all the chief priests and elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. And when they had bound him, they led him away and delivered him into Pontius Pilate, the governor. So at this time, they're all taken to Pilate. This is going to be at the Roman Judgment Hall, our third location. And here, what happens is Jesus has been, uh, or, or Jesus uh, will be questioned by Pontius Pilate. Okay, now he's the Roman governor over this province. Keep in mind that in Jerusalem right now is under Roman rule. They are under the control of the Roman Empire. So this means that the Jewish leaders didn't have any kind of uh, authority to carry out capital punishment. They couldn't carry out a sacrifice. They had to bring it all to or defer it to the Roman authorities. So what's happened is he's now heard, they bring Jesus and they say, okay, this is the case against him and they lay it all out against him. So he hears all this stuff from the Jewish leaders that this man is worthy of death. So what does Pilate do? 
He carries out his own investigation. He says, well, let me ask a few questions and find out about this, this man. And after going through and talking and asking questions, he finally concludes that, concludes that Jesus of Nazareth is innocent. But to see, the Jewish leaders aren't going to have that. They have an agenda. They have a, a plan. They wanted Jesus dead. Matthew 27, verses 22 through 26. Pilate, Pilate saith unto them, What shall I do then with Jesus, which is called Christ? They all say unto him, Let him be crucified. And the governor said, Why? What evil hath he done? But they cried out the more, saying, Let him be crucified. When Pilate saw that he, that he could prevail nothing, but that rather a tumult was made, there was a big hubbub going on, he took water, literally in front of all the people, and washed his hands before the multitude, saying, I am innocent of the blood of this just person. See to it. Then answered all the people and said, Oh, no, it's a, you're not guilty. His blood be on us and on our children. Why do you think the Jews have been suffering persecution for all these years and to this day? Listen, listen, okay? Then verse number 26. Recognize during this time frame they had an opportunity. They could let someone go. They have Jesus who Pontius Pilate says, look, he's innocent, and they've got Barabbas. This Barabbas was a rebel. He was a murderer. He was a terrible insurrectionist. So they've got Barabbas, who's this awful criminal with a rap sheet a mile long, and they've got Jesus who's innocent, and he says, okay, who am I going to let go? And they said, kill Jesus, let Barabbas go. It says here in verse 26, then released he Barabbas unto them. When he had scourged Jesus, he delivered him to, the, to be crucified. So now we go to starting the physical suffering. Okay? So there's been the emotional suffering going so far. And understand now we'll get to the, to the physical. So the, the Romans recognized the fact that they were masters of torture. Okay? And they're now bringing our loving Lord to be scourged. So here the Roman Empire is about to exact its horrific punishment on the innocent body of Jesus Christ. Now scourging, recognized, was a form of punishment that was actually invented by the Persians about 300 years before the time of Christ. And what we find is the fact that the Romans saw it when they took over Persia, and they were like, that is awesome. Look at the suffering. Oh my goodness, what a signal this will send when we strap our criminals to that, and the people will hear they're dying, screaming for mercy for us to come kill them. They'll hear that. Boy, you want to talk about putting the fear of God in somebody? Woo! They're going to be scared to their core when they see us strap our prisoners all around. So what happens with the Romans? They perfected it. They perfected it, boy. They said, you know what? Oh my, I was talking about crucifixion. Sorry. No, nope, that's wrong notes. Go back. We're talking about the scourging. So what happens? Okay. Y'all all with me? All right. We're not hanging any people around the cross. That's, that's future notes. I was already going to jump ahead. What we're talking about is scourging. Thank you very much for helping me. Um, and what happened with scourging? Scourging, again, this was something that was developed by the, by, by, the, by the Romans. But what they did was they took something called a flagrum. Okay, a flagrum was like a, like a whip. Okay? So now you all hear about the cat of nine tails. There's no confirmation that it has nine tails. Sometimes they had four, sometimes they had six, sometimes they had eight. So what happens, this is a long, this is a short whip, and it had a little tangling straps of leather. And they would tie knots at certain points, and they'd put a piece of steel, or they'd put a piece of bone, or they'd put a piece of glass. And they also had another one where the Romans added this. They would put a hook on one of them. And they could call that the scorpion. And what they did was, they perfected the art of filleting people with it. And what was interesting is the fact that we look at the, the Jewish law. Now, the Jewish law said that they could only do 39 lashes. You'll see it's in the Bible it says 40, take away one or minus one. But what's interesting is with the Roman law, 
there's no limitation. The only limitation that the Roman soldiers were given was do not kill the prisoner. Do not kill them because they've got to go on display. So here we have, listen to Isaiah 53, 5. You heard John, your David mention it before. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes, we are healed. That verse in Isaiah is 700 years before this crucifixion. 700 years before this lashing takes place. It's prophetically speaking of what's to come. And again, they bring them to the edge of death. But the reason was they were supposed to be put on display, right? They're supposed to be shown as a, as a cautionary tale to the people. And we see recorded in the scripture the fact that Jesus' torture doesn't stop there. They whip him and they whip him and they whip him. And he's still alive, but bloody, beaten, shredded. But then it continues in Matthew 27, verses 27 through 31. You guys back with me? Back on track? Cool beans. I, I got an old brain. I can't help it. Just Sometimes it just goes off. I can't stop it. Verse 27 says this. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the common hall and gathered unto him the whole band of soldiers. And they stripped him and put on him a scarlet robe. And when they had plaited a crown of thorns. Okay? Now I'm going to show you. These are actual, these are Jerusalem thorns. This is what grows around that city. This is an old pair and this is, this is thick. But when they're fresh, they bend real easily but they're incredibly, incredibly sharp. So imagine a crown made out of these, then put upon, his, put upon his head. You know how vascular your head is? Blood would just be pouring, pouring down. They put it upon his head and a reed in his right hand, and they bowed the knee before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they spit upon him and took the reed and smote him on the head. So literally pounding that crown upon his head. And after that they had mocked him, they took the robe off from him and put his own raiment on him and led him away to crucify him. Now we're getting back on track where I was jumping before. So understand, so we talked about the mental anguish that took place. We talked about the emotional anguish that's taken place, the suffering that the Lord would be under. But what's amazing is now what they're going to do is they're going to take that cross and they're going to make him bear it himself. So imagine your back is shredded and now they take a big wooden beam and they lay it on that open, open wounds. And the weight comes down upon your shoulders. And what's amazing is this is the very instrument that will kill him. He's to carry the instrument of his death. And what's amazing is, you know what? Some 2,000 years before that, in Genesis chapter number 22, there's a little excerpt there. And it talks about Isaac and Jacob. And Jacob's taking his son... Because God's told him he needs to crucify him, or he needs to, he needs to sacrifice him. And guess who carries the wood up the mountain, which is in the Mount Moriah range, which guess what? The place where we're going, Golgotha, is in the same place. This could be the same mountain. And Isaac bears the wood of the sacrifice on his back and carries it up the hill. A picture. And guess what? A lamb will be given. A ram will be given. Caught in a thicket, by the way. The ram that's going to be caught in Genesis 22 is caught in a thicket by his horns. So he literally has a crown of thorns. And he'll die in the place of a man. The lamb. That's over 2,000 years before this moment. He's to bear his cross as the crowd harasses him. Remember, this is now before when Jesus was heading to Caesarea Philippi. And he spoke to his disciples. This is what he said to them. 
in Mark 8, 31 through 35. And he says, And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be, reject and be rejected of the elders and of the chief priests and scribes and be killed after three days rise again. And he spake that saying openly. And Peter took him and began to rebuke him. So Jesus is walking. The disciples are behind him. And Peter's like, No, Lord, no! But when he had heard, when he had turned about and looked on his disciples, he rebuked Peter, saying, Get thee behind me, Satan, for thou savorest not the things that be of God, but the things that be of men. You're in your flesh, Peter. You understand. I need you to walk by faith and not by sight, Peter. Trust what I'm telling you because there's a purpose and a plan and God has it. And when he had called the people unto him with his disciples also, he said unto them, Whosoever will come after me, let him deny himself. And look what he says. And take up his cross and follow me. And here is Jesus Christ, the ultimate example. Recognize the cross that they're talking about. It represented one thing and one thing only, certain death. No one that went to the cross survived. You stayed until you died. And Jesus says, you'll take up your cross and follow me. Where is Jesus taking this cross? Up Golgotha's hill so that his flesh can die. Guess what? There's a battle within us as believers between our flesh and our spirit. Amen. And we're supposed to kill the flesh, sacrifice the flesh that the spirit might live. Verse number 35, he says this, For whosoever will save his life shall lose it, but whosoever shall lose his life for my sake in the gospels, the same shall save it. And we see that, we hear that, we go, that seems confusing. I'm not sure I understand what that means. And I thought about it this way. The, the best example, because I'm, I'm I have art background. So for me, everything needs to be visual. Otherwise, I just can't wrap it up. So I thought about a caterpillar. Who knows what a caterpillar is? Yes, right? You love it when they're all over your car. Isn't that awesome? Or you walk outside and one just dangles in your hair. You're like, ah! Freak you out. Oops, sorry about that. So you got these caterpillars. Now what happens with the caterpillar? The caterpillar's living his life. He's doing his thing. But the only way a caterpillar can become a, a butterfly is he's got to be willing to go to the chrysalis, right? He's got to be willing to go into that, that thing, whatever it is. And what happens is through this miraculous event... This creature that at one time slowly worked its way, creeping along, ravenously eating. Who's ever had a bush or a tree in your yard that they just decimated? Yeah. They're just there to destroy. That's all they do. Just consume. That's all that they do. Self, raw, raw, just eat, 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 consume, consume, consume. Then through a miraculous work that only God can do, that creature that is earthbound, that is slow, that's this ravenous beast of destruction, changes. And not only does it change the way it looks, but it changes its appetite. Because no longer is it there to destroy plants. You know that now it, it drinks the nectar. And it actually carries pollen on its little feet. And it actually becomes a pollinator. It actually helps flowers to grow. So what at one point in time was nothing but death and destruction and consumption through a miraculous work and through the surrender and willingness to stop being what it was, it becomes something completely different Amen. with a new hunger and a new purpose. That's a picture of us. Man, if you're lost today, I'm not calling you a caterpillar, but whatever. <laughs> the beautiful thing is, but what happens? One has to die, cease to exist for the other to exist. And that's why he says, for whosoever shall save his life, who wants to stay a caterpillar, you're going to miss out on the butterfly, man. But whosoever shall lose his life, whosoever will surrender that caterpillar form for my sake and the gospel's sake, 
the same shall save it. Old things are passed away, become old things become new. You are a new creature in Christ. What a beautiful picture that God puts in nature to teach us what we need to understand Amen. spiritually. Amen. Dying to self. Jesus knew the stakes, the souls of men, and He knew that He had to die. He knew what was to come, absolutely. Understand the word Golgotha, which is what we see in Scripture. Golgotha translates skull. It translates skull. Jesus is climbing up to the point of His death. And we're going to take to our fifth point, the cross on Golgotha's hill. And it would be here that our Lord would be crucified. Now, crucifixion. This was invented by the Persians, not the scourging. So it's invented by the Persians. Once the Persians had done it, the Romans saw it and they said, man, we want to be all about that. So the most serious crimes, they would put people on the cross. And what you recognize is the fact that in Jerusalem, even in Jerusalem in this day, there are hundreds and hundreds of crosses all around the city. Every major thoroughfare, they've got people lined up. So as men are up there screaming and crying and begging to be killed, all the people are going, man, I'm going to watch my P's and Q's when I'm in Jerusalem. I know that. I'm not going to, do, I'm not going to step out of line in any way, shape, or form. And the word excruciate, which means a, really a pain that's almost unimaginable. We don't know how to even perceive that kind of pain. Excruciate comes from the word crucifixion. It is literally a picture. So here is Jesus being hung as a criminal crucified. David, King David, prophetically will speak about, what, what, speak about this, uh, this act of crucifixion 600 years before it's invented. David will say this in Psalm 22, 15 through 18. My strength is dried up like a pot shard, and my tongue cleaveth to my jaws. But thy says, thou hast brought me into the dust of death. For dogs have compassed me and assembled the wicked, have enclosed me. I'm surrounded. They pierce my hands and my feet. I may tell all my bones, they look and stare upon me. The people are literally railing him and laughing at him. They part my garments among them and cast lots upon my vesture. And as the, as the Lord hung on the cross, struggling to breathe, overwhelmed with the physical suffering that He is going through, I want you to listen to this. Luke 23, 34. Then said Jesus, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they parted His raiment and cast, cast lots. And listen, it's in this statement that you see the heart of God. Notice, the mercy is not for the innocent man hanging on the cross. The mercy is for the guilty ones that are laughing, pointing, and ridiculing him as he dies. Not realizing the fact that he's saying, I'm dying for you. Amen. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And listen, lost people are going to act like lost people. Listen, I lived in the world for 34 years of my life, and guess what? I looked just like the world. I didn't know any different because no one ever told me anything. All I did was what felt right, what I was told to do. I followed my friends. I just did what I was thought I was supposed to do. But I'm telling you, man, understand that there's a greater purpose to this life. God says, man, I've got a purpose for you. Have mercy on them, God. And He does. That's why Jesus came. We would be without hope, without the Lord. The innocent Savior dies in our place. We witness the physical. We witness the, the emotional. But how about the spiritual? Now check this out. We consider the fact that through everything that Jesus has faced up to this point, everything. He has been in perfect fellowship with the Father. He's never, never been alone throughout all of eternity. Never. Every challenge, every persecution, every adversity that he's faced, he's done it with God. The Father's been there. But now, right? But now Jesus is facing this excruciating death alone. 
Because you see what's happened now? He's become sin for us. And guess what? God, in that moment, when He bears our selfish, arrogant, destructive acts of sin, when they're imputed to Christ, and they become Him, the fellowship that God had always had with His Son is broken for the first time. Sin forced that separation. And now, in unbelievable agony, He hangs there alone for the first time. Physical suffering, emotional suffering, spiritual suffering. And we can hear the weight of His agony in Mark 15, 34. And at the ninth hour, Jesus Christ, Jesus cried with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which is being interpreted, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? In his flesh, in his humanity, he's overwhelmed. He's overwhelmed. And he knew it was coming. Why would he suffer like that? Because guess what? If he didn't, there would be no hope for humanity. Amen. Understand the fact that there is a penalty for sin. God holds us responsible. Just like there's a penalty for breaking the law. That's the same thing. God holds us responsible. And sin has a penalty. That penalty, unfortunately, is death. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin, what you earn because of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life. How? Through Jesus Christ our Lord. <laughs> so there's a penalty that has to be paid. God holds us accountable for our sin. He knows everything we've done, everything we thought, all the wicked things that have come through our life. He's seen it all. And He holds us accountable. But Christ says, you know what? I'll do. I'll bear all of that on me. Amen. I'll step in and I'll die a miserable, horrific death. Not because I deserve it, because I'm completely innocent. But I will bear your sin in my body and I will suffer so that you can be set free. Isaiah 53, 6, it says, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. That is 700 years before Jesus Christ. He tells us exactly what's going to happen and it's exactly what is happening. He suffered physically, emotionally, and spiritually. And then he would die. Mark 15, 37. And Jesus cried with a loud voice and gave up the ghost. And this brings us to the grave. We're almost done. You guys are doing great. Following his death, two of his followers would request his body. They would take it, they would cleanse it, they would uh, anoint it, and they would wrap it, and they would place it into a borrowed tomb. And do you remember what Jesus had told his disciples when he was ministering to them on the way to the city? Remember this in Mark 8.31, it says this, And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must, be, must suffer many things and be rejected of the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed, which has just happened, and after three days rise again. Okay. So, not only do we remember that he said it, but guess what? The religious leaders, they remembered that he said it. They mocked him when he was alive, making fun of him about that. So, when he died, what they did was they're like, whoa, 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 whoa. Hey, now, we got uh, to get on this right away. So, they go to Pontius Pilate to deal with it. And they say this. Now, the next day that followed the day of preparation, this is right after the crucifixion, says the chief priests and the Pharisees came together to Pilate, saying, Sir, we remember that that deceiver said while he was yet alive, after three days I will rise again. Command, therefore, that the sepulcher be made sure until the third day. Look, we need you to seal that thing, lest his disciples come by night and steal him away. And say unto the people, he is risen from the dead. So the last heir shall be worse than the first. He said, look, if they believe he's risen from the dead, it's going to be even more powerful. We need to make sure that this does not happen. We've got to make sure he stays dead in the grave. We cannot afford for people to believe that he is risen. So what do they do? They set guards and they seal that tomb and they put Roman seals on the tomb. But can I tell you, 
on the third day. It didn't matter how many guards. It didn't matter how hard the seal was. That stone was rolled away. And if you read it and you understand that, it doesn't mean it was just like set over like this. It was rolled away. It was in the woods. It was like whoosh. It was rolled away. Amen. He was risen, defeating death, hell, and the grave. You see, the battle for the souls of men took place on the cross. That's where the battle took place. But you realize that the victory is at the tomb. Without the tomb, there is no victory. What we see in that empty tomb is the fact that the Father accepted that penalty, that payment for the sins of mankind. This is the most amazing event ever. And what's so amazing is the fact that literally, here Jesus Christ, who's been resurrected, He, He offered Himself a sacrifice to pay the debt for humanity. And in this event, what happens? The two greatest symbols of hopelessness. A cross, which was designed that no one would ever survive. No one ever survived the cross. It was the ultimate symbol of hopelessness. A symbol of fear and death. And God took that thing that was designed to be so horrible. And He made it the ultimate symbol of hope. Amen. Yes. And he took the tomb, which is supposed to be the end. He said, no, no, no. It's just the beginning. Yes, hallelujah. (laughs) Unlikely, unlikely symbols of hope. Yes. God did the miraculous in this moment. And do you know what? What was intended for evil? God used for good. Amen. And listen, man, if you're a believer today, you know Christ, man, celebrate Him and what He's done in your life. Live your life for His glory because we're not promised tomorrow. The Bible says life is but a vapor to appears for a short time and it vanishes away. There are people that died today that thought they had all the time in the world. There's someone who was slipped off in an accident. Every few seconds, people are dying. And they thought they had all the time in the world. And if you're young, man, you go, man, i got tons of time. Can I tell you, young people die every single day. Amen. We're not promised tomorrow. So listen, if you've never received that gift, listen, Jesus went to the cross because He loves the world. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. The debt will be paid one way or the other. If we pay the debt, we're eternally separated from God and there is no hope. It's horrific. But if we're willing to say, you know what? I know I'm a sinner. Can I tell you the night that I got saved? I didn't know anything about God. I didn't know the stories about the Bible. I didn't know anything. But I knew one thing. I was a sinner. Oh, I could tell you story after story after story after story of all the sinful, destructive, hateful things that I'd done, people that I'd hurt, things that I'd done. Oh, I had plenty of regret. But I always thought, you know, everybody's that way. What's the big deal? But when they said, you know what, God's going to hold you accountable. But the good news is, while He holds you accountable, He also loves you more than you possibly imagine. Amen. Amen. And He gave you a way. Yes. He gave you a way through coming and dying in your place. An ultimate picture of love. The Bible says, Greater love hath no man than this, than a man lay down his life for his friends. That's Jesus. He made a way for the lost 
to be saved, for those in the darkness to come into the light, for the hopeless to be filled with hope. And that no matter what we face, no matter what adversity may come, knowing the Lord, we can face it with joy in our heart. The world is absent of joy. The world is absent of hope. It's darker now than it's ever been. But the wonderful thing about darkness is just a little bit of light makes a big difference. If you're a believer today, it's time to shine. If it's just a little bit, shine. And if you're not a believer, come out of the darkness. He's calling you today. He has made a way. The question is, will you take it? Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for today. Thank you for your word. Lord, I pray I did not get in the way. God, I know that, uh, Lord, you have a purpose and a plan for the message today. And I just pray that, uh, Lord, I was able to deliver it as you told me. And uh, with our heads bowed and with our eyes closed. Listen, if you're here today and you say, I don't know where I stand with God. Listen, I don't, I don't know. If you're like I was 20 years ago, I didn't know anything about the future. I didn't know anything about Christ. But I knew I needed Him. And I could feel that draw. And can I tell you right now, the Bible says that no one comes to God but the Father draw Him. And if you feel the Lord drawing you right now, all you have to do is surrender. There's no magic words. There's no ceremony. This is not a religious thing. This is a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. What I do in this church is preach against religion a lot. This is not about religion. This is about trusting in the Christ of the Bible, not the one of religion. So their heads bowed and eyes closed. If you wanted to receive that Christ, you know you're a sinner. You know you need the Lord. I can promise you right now, He's ready to redeem you. He's ready to save you as we speak. So their heads bowed and eyes closed. If you would like to receive Christ as your Savior, you're online watching this recorded. It's not again. It's not the words of the prayer that will do anything for you. God is listening specifically to your heart. It says, For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So their heads bowed and eyes closed. If you want to receive Christ as your Savior, we're going to, I'm going to lead you in prayer. Again, it's not the words. It's going to be the heart behind it. So repeat after me in your heart and mind, if you want to receive Christ as your Savior, Dear Lord, I know that I'm a sinner. And I am so sorry for my sin. I believe that you died for me. I believe that you love me. And Lord, I'm trusting you as my Savior. Please come into my heart. Please come into my life and save my soul. By faith, I'm trusting you. And by faith, I know I will see you again one day. For it's in Jesus' name I pray and give thanks. Amen.